God, we thank you that we are met by love, God. When we turn to you, when we look to you, God, that you meet us, God, with your love, with your kindness, with your grace, God. So we honor you. We thank you for this time of worship, God. And as we get ready for your word, God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, our ears to receive, Lord God. And God, that you would open us up, Lord God, to what you want to say today. Thank you for speaking to us today. Speak through your servant right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to service today. My name is John. I'm one of the leaders here at Zion. And I have the privilege of uh, sharing today. And I'm sharing from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 15. So read with me. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and establishing in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you, having, filled, having been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over, him, over them in him. You know, there's a show on Netflix that I like. It's called Cobra Kai. And it's based off of an 80s movie called The Karate Kid. If you haven't seen it, then please tonight, instead of watching a Christmas movie, consider getting this movie, The Karate Kid. Disclaimer. There was a remake of it with Jalen Smith, and it's horrible. Don't watch it. I know I'm going to get flamed for this. It's okay. Bring it on. So in this movie, The Karate Kid, this kid Daniel moves with his mom to California. And there he quickly finds that he's being bullied by kids, and he wants to defend himself. So he decides to take some karate lessons. He visits the local dojo, and the name of the dojo is called Cobra Kai. Uh, the sensei of the dojo is actually the one teaching the kids that are bullying him. So he decides to get lost and get out of there. At home, he meets a repairman uh, from his building named Mr. Miyagi, who one day has to defend Daniel when he's getting bullied by these kids again. Daniel begs Mr. Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi to teach him um, his karate ways. Uh, Mr. Mr. Miyagi says, sure, I'll teach you. Come to my house. At his house, Daniel proceeds to learn how to paint the fence, how to sand the floor, and how to wax the car. Daniel, in his frustration after a couple of weeks of doing these things, goes to Mr. Miyagi and says, well, you're not teaching me karate, I'm just an errand boy. Mr. Miyagi shows him his unconventional way of teaching karate. 
When he was learning how to paint the fence, how to sand the floor, how to wax the car, he was actually learning defensive moves to protect himself from someone attacking him. You're probably asking yourself right now, John, what does the Karate Kid have to do with Colossians? Well, Paul taught the gospel in an unconventional way. Um, it wasn't about traditions or rituals or anything else that the religions of that time taught. Um, one of the prominent religions at that time was Judaism. Um, and from early on, children were indoctrinated to follow the foundations of Judaism, which are the commandments and the laws of Moses. And if they did these things, they would be found righteous and would be saved and get a chance to go to heaven. Another growing religion at the time or growing uh, belief system was Gnosticism. Um, this religion or belief system actually centered around taking pieces of other religions and adding it to themselves so that they could be uh, knowledgeable and enlightened. And in this manner, you would get to heaven or you would get to the next plane. Uh, Paul introduced the gospel that identifies grace, mercy, love, righteousness, and all those things that are freely given to us in the person of Jesus and his work on the cross. Today, we're going to spend some time with the gospel and how Paul uses it to strengthen the church in Colossae. At this time, Paul was in prison and he heard the church in Colossae, who was once very strong in the faith, was now vulnerable uh, because of contrary teachings uh, that they were hearing from other believers within the church. He writes in verse six and seven, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul immediately calls their attention back to their conversion and reminded them what they received when they first believed. Here, Paul makes two profound statements in one single phrase. Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Lord. So he essentially said to the church in Colossae, as you receive Jesus as your savior and as your Lord, don't veer off course to remain steady in their pursuit of and union with Jesus. When we continue to pursue and remain in union with Jesus, he will keep us rooted and built up in him, establishing us in faith as the gospel teaches us. The Lord does the work of rooting their, rooting their faith in him, continuing to build upon their faith and confirming their faith. Jesus both saves us and he sustains us. Walking in Christ is trusting him with our souls, obeying him and what he asks or commands us to do, such as loving our neighbors, sharing the gospel and discipling others. Our walk in Christ is a response to the work that he has done and continues to do in us. It shows that we remain in relationship with him, walking the way Walking in this way is a sign of thanksgiving. Well, speaking about thanksgiving, this year we spent it at my mother-in-law's house. She's an amazing cook. And Miriam, I don't tell you this enough, but thank you for every meal you've ever cooked for me. I'm always blown away. Anyway, she usually starts the turkey prep a, a few days before Thanksgiving, and it sits in the fridge and marinates. On Thanksgiving, she's up early in the morning she puts the turkey in the oven and then starts making the sides, the rice and beans, the sweet potato pie with the brown sugar and the pecans, the stuffing, potato salad, and so much more. 
It takes hours of prep, um, hours of prep to cook and to make the house ready. Come dinner time, I just sit at the table and serve myself. I eat myself into a coma and then get up and grab another plate. I get to feast on an amazing meal that I didn't have to cook, spend time with family and friends. I get to laugh and it's all taken care of by her. Jesus did all the work for my salvation. He endured the cross, he gave his life up, he rose again. I have to believe that he is both savior and Lord. I receive his gift of grace and salvation. He then does the work to keep me in him, giving me faith to believe in him, and all that I'm responsible for is living this life out for Christ. As I said earlier, it's about trusting and, obe and obeying him, and it shows my gratitude and thanksgiving when I live that way. Now, Paul began with a reminder, and now he, he goes on to challenge the believers to protect themselves from false teachers. Verse 8 and 9, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In this portion of text, Paul is combating something known as the Colossian heresy, where there was a mix of different philosophies, Jewish mysticism, and Jewish law being taught within the church. It was not something dull or far-fetched. Instead, it was highly intelligent and sounded good. I don't want to go too deep into this as I know he addresses it later in the text and Justin will pick up on it in a week or two. Some Colossian Christians came from a polythe polytheistic background where they worshiped many gods who represented different areas of life such as peace, war, sex, the elements, and they just adopted Jesus as another God that they would worship. Then we have the Jews who were indoctrinated from birth with traditions and rituals that required them, that were required in order that they maintain their standing with God. Some of these traditions were circumcision, festivals, sacrifices to atone for sins, and so much more. Much like the church in, the Gal in Galatians, the Jews here tried to make the non-Jews adhere to these traditions and customs by teaching that they were necessary for salvation. Can I say I personally experienced something similar? And it wasn't until I started coming to Zion that I began to see how wrong and corrupt my understanding of the gospel and my Christian walk was. I was taught that serving in church was necessary. It showed maturity in Christ. And though nobody said it, you were looked at differently when you served as opposed to those who didn't serve. For years, I earned my salvation and my place in Christ by serving, not fully grasping those things that cannot be earned but are freely given by God. I quite literally put everything into serving, giving up time with family and friends and pursuing things like higher education and even rest for myself. I was taught that, that serving was necessary and that if it didn't cost me something, then it really wasn't pleasing to God. I remember also instilling this into the men and the women I led. To those that might be listening today, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please don't get what I'm saying wrong. Serving in the church on a team is not wrong. It's beautiful when you're doing it out of your love for Christ. It's pleasing to him. It blesses the people that you serve. It blesses the church and it blesses you. So don't misunderstand me here, but if you are serving to try to earn your way into heaven 
or out of obligation to a pastor, then stop it right now. That's not what God wants, and I know that's not what we want here at Zion. You see, I equated the acceptance of my pastors and leaders with the acceptance of Christ. So everything that I did, it was for their approval. And if I had their approval, I thought I had, I thought I had God's approval. It became Jesus plus my pastor's approval and not just Jesus. I lost sight of the gospel that tells me his acceptance, his love, his grace, his mercy, his righteousness is not earned but freely given. I just have to receive it. Now, Paul goes on to present proof as to why Jesus cannot be just another God that some of the Colossian Christians are worshiping. He says, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, Paul declares the deity of Jesus. Since in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead, Jesus could not be a small G God. Because all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him both bodily and spiritually. He was not a man that was empowered by God. He is God who came down to earth and put on the likeness of man in order to fulfill the law he created and become the sacrificial lamb of God. At this time, there was the early form of Gnosticism, which separated the material from the spiritual. So there was teaching that teaching happening that Jesus was not God, but was enlightened and received power in a mystical sense. Taking away Christ's deity, subjecting him to be just a man, and removing salvation through faith. Paul stresses our need to see the deity of Jesus, both spiritually and bodily, breaking this false teaching and reassuring the believers that Jesus, that Jesus and only Jesus is the way. The gospel loses its power when Jesus' deity is removed. This is what Paul was battling. When you receive this truth that Jesus is God, then in our faith relationship with him, we are complete. We are full because he is it. There is no and or add on to Jesus. Jesus is our all and he is over all. Now, as we go back into the text, we find Paul speaking to another false teaching that there was a requirement for circumcision to receive salvation. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, much of the church in Colossae was made up of Gentiles, so they did not practice circumcision. And one of these false teachings Paul needed to combat was the idea to have, for them to have to be physically circumcised in order to be made right with God. The Jews taught this because this was their, their way of identifying themselves with God. In Genesis 17, 10, 11, it says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you should be circumcised. You should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of covenant between me and you. Now, I know if you've been at Zion for a little while, we spent way too much time talking about circumcision the first year when we were in the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you, Justin, for that. But here, I want to talk more about what Paul was talking about. 
See, God makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. They would be set apart as God's people because they were circumcised. Some of the Jews began to teach circumcision as a requirement for salvation in the church. And this caused confusion among the Gentiles, be, among the Gentiles because Paul did not mention it as a requirement for salvation when he presented the gospel to them. See, as 2 second, as Timothy 8.10 confirms to us, we're not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. See, Paul says, you were circumcised, but not physically, instead spiritually, which is even more important than physical circumcision. Paul says, if you want to look at an act that represents the circumcision of the heart, you can look to baptism. It's our identification with the death and the resurrection of life of Jesus. We are buried with Jesus as we go under the water and we raise out of the water. We are raised with new life. Baptism is not salvation. Salvation comes by faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 confirms this. Baptism is our personal testimony to an inward assurance of our passage from an old life of sin to a new life with Christ. We symbolically go under the water as Christ was placed into the tomb and we die to our old sinful nature. And when we rise out of the water, we are symbolically raised with Christ in new life. You see, circumcision usually happens for boys at birth and they never remember it or understand it. For them, it's not a conscious decision. They make it's not a conscious decision, while baptism is an acknowledgement of the believer to identify with Christ's death and resurrection. Today, I want to encourage you, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and have received him as your Savior and haven't been baptized yet, please take some time, go to our app, and under the frequently used forms, there's a baptism form. Fill it out. I know we would love to talk to you and get this taken care of. I promise you, it's not a ritual or tradition for us. The meaning and the gravity of the moment you're baptized, it's liberating and sobering for you. Take advantage of it. And as Paul is wrapping up this first part of chapter two, he reminds the church the gravity of their situation before they received the gospel and salvation of Jesus. Verses 13 to 15 say, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The gospel is good news because we were dead in our sin. Often I hear people refer to sinners as being weak, helpless, and in desperate need. Yet those analogies I find hard for us not to try to remedy the situation ourselves. What if we try harder? If I get out of this situation, if I just do this? When you're dead, there's nothing you can do. Nothing you can offer. Well, because you're dead. A dead man needs someone who can make them alive again. And the only person who can do this is Jesus. Jesus makes us alive with him, meaning life for us only comes in and through Jesus. As long as we remain in him, we are alive. In Romans 1.6, 6, 
Paul says this about the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power in the gospel is that it reveals the truth and the beauty of the cross to us. The work needed for us to free us from sin was done in and through Christ. The ledger was against us. Our debt of sin was too much for us to repay. Think of it like this. In financial terms, we were bankrupt. And in today's world, you can file for bankruptcy and the majority of your debt can be expunged or written off. Yet student loans are exempt. Now I can hear all the groans right now that are going on from all the student loan holders. No matter what you do, your student loans follow you forever. Even after you declare bankruptcy, your bad credit history follows you. For some of us, it could last seven years and for others, a lifetime. You always have it on your record. And when you go to apply for a home or a job, it'll show up in a search. Though you have been forgiven of your debt, it's not really forgotten. When Jesus comes to us and offers his forgiveness for the sin debt that we carry, first, it covers all our sins. There's not a sin that it doesn't pay off. Also, it doesn't stay on our record. It's not like we approach God and he says, well, remember the time you lied on your taxes? Remember the time that you cursed out that driver on the Belt Parkway? Remember that time you had that affair? Remember that time you did this or did that? That does not happen with God. When we come to him, all those things are erased from our record. He wiped it out, canceled it completely. He took the debt, the weight of the debt, and the power it had over us and nailed it to the cross. Jesus paying the price for our sin was not the only victory of the cross. God disarmed the demonic powers at the cross. Christ's victory on the cross was both for our salvation and to strip the demonic powers and authorities on earth of all the ability they had to attack and defend themselves. What was meant as a public shaming in Jesus being hung naked on a cross was actually the meaning was actually the means by which God would triumph over his enemies and publicly shame them. See, Paul knew who he was speaking to because the church in Colossae would recognize when Rome would triumph over a foe, they would have a victory parade and they would publicly shame the commander of that defeated army by walking him through the streets. The gospel reminds us that our enemies are defeated they have no power or authority over our lives because we are found in Jesus. As I get ready to close, today we've been reminded of the beauty and unconventional way the gospel has been presented to us. It's not something that we're required to achieve, work towards, or be good at. The gospel's good news because it tells us how Jesus secured all that is needed for salvation in his life, death, and resurrection from the cross. It's beautiful because it's a gift we don't deserve and we can never hope to achieve, yet he freely and lovingly presents it to us. Today, God might be speaking to some of us and he's saying, stop trying to work for my love. I have been guilty of making it Jesus plus, trying to earn his love. Maybe your plus doesn't look like my plus, or the plus of the person in the house church that you're sitting with right now. But you have a plus. 
you know it's there. Today, I want you to rest in the gospel that he already loves you and has already completed all the work necessary for you to be with him. Like my mother-in-law's Thanksgiving dinner, he's inviting us to come and sit and eat and spend some time with him. For some of us, maybe it's the enemy we hear listing out our failures and our sin. Today, the gospel reminds us that our, that our accuser is just that, all talk. Our enemy and his minions, they have a loud bark, but no bite. When he comes to accuse you, remind yourself of the gospel that he has triumphed over his enemies and our enemies. They have been disarmed and publicly shamed. They have no power or authority any longer. You now belong to Jesus. He has taken your failures, your sin, your debt, and nailed it to the cross, never to be brought up against you again. For a long time, I believed that the gospel was for sinners in need of a savior. And once you were saved, you didn't need to use the gospel unless you were witnessing. I was dead wrong. The gospel is as much relevant today as it was when I first believed. It keeps us from sin and from self-righteousness. It secures our hope in Christ and not in anyone else. It lets us know that we don't have to measure up that he's done all the work and he secured our life in him. Can we pray? Lord, I thank you for your gospel today, God. I thank you for the liberty and the grace that comes with your gospel, Lord God. Thank you, it frees us from having to work, Lord God. It frees us from having to add anything else to our life, Lord God. Jesus, you're it for us, and today we're secure in that, that you are our all, and we love you, and we thank you, God. And God, as we get ready to go back into worship, God, I pray that we would make room for you in our hearts, Lord God, like never before, God. Room for your gospel to take up new residence in our life, Lord God, that it would be something that we meditate on daily in you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.